Listener Production. This is Global Truths with Dr. Keith Souter. Today we're talking about Theresa May, the Prime Minister of the UK, who is in dire straits and, and at the moment trying to negotiate Brexit, which is Britain leaving the European Union, which has been a member for many, many decades. Uh, it's chaos, Keith. Yeah, absolutely. So the the chaos that we've got in the United Kingdom um, arises out of the um, weird situation whereby the European Union was designed to bring countries into the Union. Very little thought was given to how you actually get them out of the Union. The assumption was that once you've joined, you'd never want to leave. You'd never want to resign. So Article 50, which covers this, is actually very short and no one has ever thought through what the full implications will be for trying to handle this. So just to give you the background, the um, European Union has changed its name over the years um, and so it's is now called European Union. It started off as, as Benelux, Belgium, Netherlands, Luxembourg, etc. It's evolved since 1948. Right. So at the very beginning, the British uh, decided they wouldn't join. So there was an ambiguity right from the very beginning. So Winston Churchill, for example, gave a brilliant speech in 1947 talking about the need for Europe to unite. Well, that's Western Europe, of course, because of the Soviet threat. But his own view was that the United Kingdom had three circles of influence. So the United States, the Commonwealth and Europe. And so as far as Churchill was concerned, the UK should remain committed to those three circles. So Britain had this ambiguous relationship between um, the late 1940s until 1973, whereby it was never really part of the European Union. It wasn't officially part of it, but at the same time, hankered to join it. In fact, tried um, to join it in the 1960s and was vetoed by France. Ironically, uh, President de Gaulle, who was saved by the British during World War II, was the one who exercised the veto because de Gaulle said, the problem for you British is that you really don't know that whether or not you really are European or whether you're still too friendly with the Americans and you're hankering after maintaining the Commonwealth and the Empire. So what we get then is that in 1973, Ted Heath at long last gets Britain into the European Union. So that's 1973. And the European, what is now called the European Union, those that was the European Economic Community. So the European Economic Community, European Union, has increased its membership now. So it's 28 countries. And it is also getting deeper in the sense that more and more of items are being regulated by the European Union. So... What does that mean? Well, it means, in effect, that We've got issues relating to trade and social matters, etc. They are being sorted out in a, in a, a way whereby they just lay down regulations, including the humble British sausage is now subject to EU regulation. That's a standard example which people like to quote. So they're getting more and more detailed. For example, um, in, in May of this year, they've introduced the most um, profound data protection legislation anywhere in the world and everybody's having to check their mailing lists. Now, the, the European Union gave people two years' notice. In Great Britain, we've had this scramble that's gone on for the last six months, whereby everybody has to drop hints to everybody who's on their mailing list saying, do you want to remain? Uh, it's, it's bizarre. So it's getting more and more detailed, and it's involving more and more countries. And as you mentioned before, this is a club of countries that everyone wants to be 
involved with and a part of, and you had countries like Turkey lobbying many, many generations almost to be part of it. Uh, What are the benefits? What does the European bring to those that join? Why does everyone want to be part of this club? If you join the club, then you get access to the wider market, the European market, without all the tariffs, etc. So it means, for example, that if you travel on a European passport, as I do, you just move effortlessly from Dublin across to Warsaw. You have a passport, but you just wave it at people. It's not subject to the scrutiny that it'll be if you were, say, coming in from Africa, something like that. So you've got the movement of people. Uh, the second most common language in England uh, today is Polish because there are just so many Polish people who quite legitimately have now moved to stay in the United Kingdom. They're there providing a lot of basic services. Uh, They're doing a great job. Uh, So you've got this movement of people, you've got the movement of money, you've got the movement of goods as well. Um, They obviously want to eventually move towards a common recognition of services. So if you get a practising certificate as a lawyer in one country, it'll be recognised somewhere else. So it's really linking Europe together This was the dream which began after World War II. Remember, Europe has been um, the cause and the cockpit of two world wars. So the Europeans after World War II uh, decided, look, we're going to avoid this again. We're going to mesh together the sinews of war. In other words, iron and steel. So they began with France and West Germany getting together and making war impossible for the French and the Germans. Their their economy is so interdependent now, you cannot very easily imagine another war between France and Germany. So that's all the good news. And so what happens with, um, just laying the groundwork, so we're all on the same page, we all understand the European Union and its inner workings. Uh, Obviously, not all the countries have the same level of wealth. There are a lot of much poorer countries that are now part of the EU. What did they have to prove to be admitted entry into the European Union? Well, they do have criteria relating to government budgets and that sort of thing, although when Greece entered, it entered on a lie and the auditing firm that produced the report lied as to the financial health of Greece. Um, As Warren Buffett, my hero, says, uh, it's only when the tide goes out you can see who's swimming naked. So the Greeks did very well when there was a booming global economy, but then after 2008, with the downturn in the global economy, suddenly we noticed the Greeks were swimming naked. So, in fact, you ended up after the global financial crisis in 2008 with the peaks. So there's Portugal... Italy, Ireland, Greece and Spain. So those countries were particularly vulnerable in terms of the finances. They all had different problems. Uh, In some cases, in Greece, um, it's a general feeling that the government is rather lax in trying to uh, collect taxes, etc. In Spain, by contrast, no problem with the government uh, regulations. The problem was over banks who had lent too much money for real estate, which, of course, was a problem in the United States as well. They were banks behaving badly. Um, So all of those countries had different reasons, but they're all financially very vulnerable. The country that has benefited most from the European Union has been Germany. So we're getting back to all of these stories about, you know, this is basically a German takeover of Western Europe. What it failed to acquire in two world wars, it's won through having a vibrant economy. Uh, and the European, the euro, which Britain never joined, the euro, the basic common currency, um, was pitched at the level for the German mark. And so there are a lot of countries that are saying, look, all of everything is far too expensive because we're really up to that German level. Um, 
Britain, by the way, never joined the Euro, the Euro because it, it, it could see all sorts of problems. Mrs Thatcher was opposed to the Euro and she was proved right, you know, being in that economic straitjacket. That's the problem for Italy at the moment. As you know, we've just had a change of power in Italy. We've now got an anti-EU coalition government in, uh, in Rome now um, and the Italians are saying we cannot bring about an economic recovery because everything is so expensive because everything's expressed in euro. In the old days, you would have devalued. You would have had a lira and just devalued the lira. You can't do that now in the euro. So the, these are all the sort of problems that the countries have got. Now, from a British point of view, one of the things that they particularly disliked about the European Union was this free movement of people. Um, and so you, you've got this nationalist kick, you know, people saying, look, we've got too many Poles in this country, plus other nationalities, get them out of here. Now, the irony is that they're doing the work the British are not willing to do. So you actually do need the Poles to do basic work. All your menial tasks, like they're people's house cleaners and taxi drivers Absolutely. and things like that. Yeah, the receptionists, yeah. Um, so that, that's the irony of the situation. You're listening to Global Truths with Dr. Keith Suda. We are trying to get to the bottom of this whole Brexit fiasco at the moment. Theresa May, the Prime Minister in uh, Britain, is just having, it's just in absolute chaos, negotiating the terms for which Britain will leave the European Union. So we're beginning history of all of this from, from Keith about how it all started. And now we're moving on to the British element of the conversation, which is, What's going on there now? Because, of course, this is unprecedented territory. No yep. country has ever left the European Union before. Uh, everyone wants to join the European Union. They don't want to leave the European Union. So what is she dealing with internally in Britain in terms of trying to negotiate terms? Well, she's trying to negotiate with a target of March 2019, right? So they had two years' notice period, Um Ironically, the first thing she did when she became Prime Minister is to call a new election, which she did very badly. She thought she was going to get a clear mandate, but clearly a lot of the young people who hadn't bothered to vote in the Brexit referendum figured, oh, we're not going to make that mistake again, so they turned out to vote. So we ended up then with Jeremy Corbyn acquiring rock star status. Um, we had um, the BBC done a lot of heart searching as to how they got the election so badly wrong in their predictions. And one of the journalists said that he was attending these Jeremy Corbyn election rallies and he was reporting Labour will be doing badly. But he was actually seeing at these rallies the biggest attendance of any political rally since Clement Attlee in 1945. And yet this idiot, as he admits was saying, oh, there's no way that Labor's going to do well because clearly the Prime Minister, Theresa May, was so popular. And, and, of course, you know, the result turned out to be very bad for her. It was a disaster. So, so she's, she's trying to negotiate this exit deal. She then shoots herself in the foot by calling a premature general election, which Labor does very well in. But the problem is that both Labor and Conservative are divided. This is a, a fault line that runs through both parties. So she has announced uh, that they'll have this two-year, which is in the the, uh, the basic treaty. You've got two years to negotiate your exit. Treaty between them and the European Union? Uh, well, it's in the European Union. It's Article 50, right? So Article 50 explains how you get a divorce. As, as you've said, nobody ever expected a divorce to occur. So it's, 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 you know, it's completely un, uncharted territory. So working towards the March 2019 target, remember, that's less than a year away. They've got to sort out what payment 
will the UK make to the European Union um, just to wind up its its commitments there financially? What happens to UK citizens who currently reside in the European Union? And what happens to the EU citizens who are currently residing in the UK? So on the one hand, you've got a number of my friends who've gone to retire in the south of France, etc. What happens to them? They're there on a British passport, which is a European passport. It won't be European in March next year. Meanwhile, of course, you've got all these uh, migrant workers who are doing all the very important work, like the Polish uh, people that we've got there doing that work. But what's going to happen to them? Um, so that's the second one, the whole question of citizenship. Uh, the third one is what will the trading relationship be between the United Kingdom and the European Union? This is where the Prime Minister had her problem in the last few days about whether it's going to be a hard Brexit or a soft Brexit. A hard Brexit means we're out of here, right? We're completely out of here. A soft Brexit means we're a little out but not completely. And and so if you oppose Brexit, then you'd prefer a soft Brexit because you're actually keeping up a bit of a relationship, whereas the hard Brexit people are saying, let's just get out of here. And the problem for both the Prime Minister, who, by the way, opposed Brexit, but as Prime Minister, she was, of course, then just a Cabinet member. Um, I might just say, just uh, just to clarify what happened here, because the tragedy of all of this is it was a stupid miscalculation by David Cameron. Cameron was one of the best prime ministers, or at least seemed to be one of the best prime ministers Britain has had since World War II. But always bubbling away, really since 1973, was a a, um, a disgruntlement with joining the European Union. So it was a party problem within uh, the Conservative Party. The Labour Party had had that problem. They then called a referendum um, in the in the early 1970s when they were got when they were in power. The matter was settled. So Labour was then quite united in saying, look, we're going to have to make a, a success to the European Union. The Tories, by contrast, were divided. And what we see is a very small political movement which gathers momentum within the Conservative Party. And so David Cameron, during the election campaign in 2015, said, if I am re-elected, I will call a referendum on this. Now, he did that expecting not to win in a large way. 2010, he just fell over the line with support from, ironically, a left-wing party at the other end of the spectrum. So he figured in 2015, well, it'll be the same relationship. I'll be in with these so-called Liberal Democrats and they will restrain me from ever being able to implement my promise. And I'll be able to say, sorry, guys, I couldn't do it. We're in a coalition government. And the Liberal Democrats in the coalition wouldn't, wouldn't allow me to do it. What happened is that David Cameron did so well in 2015, the Liberal Democrats got punished by their own supporters for working with David Cameron. So Cameron found himself with this marvellous swing to the Conservatives' parties, and so you've got these hardline Conservatives saying, well, you've promised a referendum, we're going to have to hold it now. So he held the referendum in 2016, went badly, and he then resigned. And so that's how Theresa May, who was the Home Secretary, ends up as Prime Minister. So she campaigned against Brexit when she was the Home Secretary, but then with Cameron falling on his own sword, she then uh, becomes Prime Minister and says, Brexit means Brexit. I don't like it, but Brexit means Brexit. I will honour the wishes of the general public even though it was a fairly narrow thing. And a lot of people, having voted, weren't sure really what they were voting for. What is this thing called the European Union? Too late. The decision is made. The British will need to live with it. So 
what we've got then are these divisions within both parties. Going back to your question about what Mrs May is having to deal with. So one is the financial relationship with the European Union. The second is the whole question of citizens, UK citizens living in the European Union area, European citizens living within the UK after March of next year. Third one is the trading relationship between the United Kingdom and the European Union. Um, So a hard Brexit means you're completely out of here. A relationship pretty much like Australia has, say, with the European Union. The alternative is a soft Brexit, which is that you're half out but not completely out. So you enjoy some of the benefits. Norway, for example, voted not to join the European Union but does have a trading relationship which is quite favourable to the European Union. Now, if you're a hardliner like Jacob Rees-Mogg within the Conservative Party, you'd say, no, we're out of here, lock, stock and barrel. So we've got this difficulty then which has to be sorted out between the United Kingdom and the European Union, which uh, requires um, the either a hard Brexit or a soft Brexit. So a hard Brexit would mean we're completely out of here, no more trading relationships. Effectively, the European Union will treat the UK much as it treats Australia or the United States. You're right outside the European Union. The alternative is a soft Brexit, which means you're a bit in but a bit out, <laughs> which is really what a lot of people, uh, including Mrs May, would, would, I think, secretly like. In other words, people who are opposed to Brexit saying we can soften the impact of Brexit by having a some sort of trading relationship with the European Union of some sort. That's the soft Brexit. Clearly, the general public are very confused about this. Could I just also just mention what the fourth uh, problem is, which is the border between Northern Ireland and the Republic of Ireland. Remember, as a result of the peace negotiations from 20 years ago, that border pretty well disappeared and that both countries are within the European Union. After March of next year, Northern Ireland, which voted to remain within the European (laughs) Union, will find itself out of the European Union thanks to the voters on the mainland or, more strictly, England and Wales. So where to from here, Kate? Like, wh- how do they resolve this? How, how does she get... What are the scenarios that we're looking at? Well, the scenarios is that the negotiations will just have to continue um, and in the hope that eventually someone will find a way of compromising it. I've got to say, when you look at the strife that she's in, the House of Lords have also weighed in as well. Everybody's weighed in. And, and as I say, the parties themselves are divided. Uh, and she just looks thoroughly exhausted. Jeremy Corbyn this week was defied by some of his own members of parliament as well. So as I say, the, the problem, if you're a Labour member of parliament, the chances are your constituency voted to leave. Remember, this is the Trump effect before Trump appeared. This is the Trump effect. You know, you've got working class people up in the north of the country who are saying we have really not benefited from the European Union. Uh, the people who have benefited are those down in the London. It's almost a geographical split. So down in the south is finance, it's banking, etc. They have done very well out of being in the European Union. If you're in the north, the area's run down, the industry has collapsed, etc. They are the Labour constituencies and they tended to vote to leave the European Union. And they're anti-immigration, a lot of them. And they're anti-immigration because they say these people are coming over here and they're taking our jobs, etc. Now, the problem is for... Jeremy Corbyn's MPs is that although some of them privately may be in favour of Remain, they're representing constituencies that still want to get out. So the the Labour Party is also divided. The Conservatives are divided 
and the Labor Party is divided. And, of course, they're also now realising that people, particularly in the financial sector, are making arrangements to move head offices now either to Dublin or perhaps to Germany. Frankfurt is the obvious place, or Paris. Um, so you'll see an exodus of the banks um, to going there because, obviously, you need to be in the centre of Europe, which is where you would be either in Dublin or, uh, say, Frankfurt or Paris, Geographically, it means that you can handle Asia and the United States because you're on the right time zone for that. That's the, that's the advantage. But if you're outside of the European Union, then you've got too many limitations. So you've got some already talks about people buying up houses in Dublin. Um, they're going to do their banking now through Dublin, not from London. So it's very interesting when you look at the UK media coverage, those that were opposed to leaving are carrying all these horror stories about Britain running down. So this is a case of watch this space, Keith. Absolutely. Global Truths was presented by Dr Keith Souter and me, Kate Mack. Produced by Live Proud. Audio production by Darcy Thompson. Listener.